good Sunday morning. My name is Joe McKechnie, and I am so blessed to be the lead pastor here at Chapel Roswell. And God is just doing some mighty, incredibly amazing things. And it's an honor to be here with each and every one of you this morning. Uh, before we jump into our scripture, I want to share a, a quick little story with you. Originally, as of about maybe, uh, let's say, about 5.45 last night, I was getting everything ready for what I was going to wear to church tomorrow. I had a, a red sweater. Georgia across the front and a black jacket. And unfortunately, because of situations beyond my control, I had to do over my uh, wardrobe and realize that I can't really wear what I originally wanted to wear. So, in lieu of a sermon this morning, we are going to have a time of mourning. Now, here's what that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, our scripture this morning actually does relate to people who were in a season of mourning. They were too in a season of darkness. We thought Georgia fans were going to be in a sense of darkness this morning. We have nothing on the Israelites, okay? And that's where we're going to go this morning. The Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. That means that he was appointed, he was designated to be this spokesperson for God. Now, very often when we think of a prophet, we think of someone who tells the future. And to some extent that's true, but primarily the prophet's role was to be the, the voice box, the mouthpiece for God. They proclaim God's truth. Now, kind of like as a parent, we'll say, okay, if you keep acting like this, son or daughter, this might be the consequence of that. And so very often that's what the prophets did. And very often when things didn't go well, it looked like they were being prophetic, saying this is what's going to happen. And sure enough, those things happened. But they had been warning the people for a long time, you don't want to follow that. You don't want to go down that road. You want to be obedient to God over here. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. This was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And yet it's a passage that all of us now keep in mind when we talk about Christmas. We're going 700 years B.C., but here's what he writes. And I'll give you some backstory later on. It's a short passage, one mere verse, and even a short verse at that. But it speaks profoundly of what God was doing on their behalf and the good news is God is doing that on your behalf and your behalf and your behalf and your behalf and my behalf this morning. Hear the word of God. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Will you pray with me? Most gracious God, we thank you for the gift of your word, for the power that comes from scripture. Pour out your wisdom and your calling upon each of us as we, Lord, seek to know you more. We thank you for sending Jesus into a world so desperately in need of a, of a savior, in need of healing, of hope, salvation. Lord God, open our hearts and minds to the ways in which you want to speak to us and teach us this morning. And Father God, stir within us a hunger for your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, it's one of those moments, one of those days, one of those evenings, one of those events that I can recall with great imagery, with great vividry when I, I look back on my life, okay? There are just some thoughts that, you know, kind of linger in your minds. I'm going to take you back about a decade and a half. Now, I can promise you this story has not been embellished. It's 100% true. Okay, trust me, my life is far stranger than any fiction ever could be. I don't need to make up anything at all. 
My reality is far crazier than anything anybody could make up. I was living down in Winter Park, Florida. That's just outside of Orlando. I was in my early 30s. I hadn't yet met my beautiful wife, Catherine. I'd never been married. I was attending seminary, and I was serving as the youth minister at a large church down there, and life was going great. I loved the church. I loved the congregation, the community, the people around us. I even liked the, the readings and the the, the papers and the arrays of project that I had to do for, for seminary. It was just a, a great season of life. Maybe you're in a great season now where everything just seems to be going so incredibly smooth and everything is going well. But there was one part of my life, one part of my life which wasn't the way that I wanted it to be. You see, I desperately wanted to be married and start a family. I went through this long, long, long Long, 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 long season of waiting, of anticipation. Remember that phrase, waiting and anticipation. Waiting and anticipation. Now, I had a friend who set me up with this beautiful young woman with whom he worked. And I first spoke with her on the phone on a Tuesday. And we hit it off. We had a great conversation, probably talked for about an hour. And I thought, maybe there's some potential here with this beautiful young woman. I asked if she wanted to go out with me for dinner on Friday. Uh, she readily agreed. Okay, so that Friday afternoon, I made sure that I had the, the perfect clothes laid out. I know it sounds kind of dorky, but after fixing my hair, I, I applied the perfect ratio of, of aftershave. And, and I've got to be honest with you, okay? Uh, because of a problem at birth, I was born without a personality. And because of that, these dates would be so angst-inducing, I wanted to make sure everything was perfect I was so focused on myself and what I was going to wear and how I looked and how I smelled and how I was going to sound that it just dawned on me. My car was a mess. So I ran outside and I, I cleaned it out by hand, took Windex and wiped down the windshield and the windows. Then I took the car vac and I went through it again. I was like a NASCAR pit crew doing all of this stuff so quickly, so fast. But then I realized, uh-oh, Joe. The outside of your car is a mess. The interior, spotless. But the outside was another matter. You see, in, in central Florida in the hot summer months, thunderstorms are just a daily way of life, a daily occurrence, which means my car for weeks, months, maybe years, had been driven through all of this rain and muck and all these little floods that come up, even some hail. It looked rough, the, the, the mud and the grime and the debris all caked on the side of my dark green car. So I, I gathered all the quarters I could find at home, all the quarters that I had laying around the, the car, and I went to a local car wash. It was, you know, one of those car washes where you, you pull in under the little porch, you put in some quarters, you take the wand, and you rinse the car. You know what kind of car wash I'm talking about, this kind of stuff right there. You deposit, I think, three quarters at the time. You turn this dial and you pick up this large, heavy brush, and after you rinse it, you, you scrub down the car. I started with the, the roof of the car and then the hood and then the trunk. And honestly, that took a lot longer than I ever thought that it would. After all, my car was, my car was caked in mud and residue and grime. Then I began to wash the passenger side of the car. And I'll admit it took a lot longer than I had realized. I, I thought I could get this soapy scrubbing done in one cycle. But then, beep, beep, beep. 
The timer was going out. I had to run in and quickly put in three more quarters, push in the thing, go back with the, the, the brush and keep scrubbing. Got finally to the, the, the back quarter of the car and then beep, beep, beep. Had to run over, put in three more quarters, get this big heavy wand and start to rinse the car. And that took a lot longer than I thought. And I realized I'm not going to make it. Finally, I reached in, put in three more quarters, finally got the whole passenger side of the car done. And as I continued to rinse off everything, it dawned on me. The beeper was starting to go off, and I had no more quarters. Not only that, I, I had as much cash in my pocket then as I have now. You can see it's totally empty. <laughs> what am I going to do? So this thought hit me. I have no more money with which, with which to wash my car, but I got half of it clean. If only I could go out on this date without her seeing the other side of the car, <laughs> just seeing the clean side, I was going to be in like Flynn. And so that's all I could do. I went up, I went to her house, picked up this beautiful young woman. Uh, I made sure that as I pulled into the front of her house that it was only on the right side, got out of the left side, went up, came down, opened the door for her so she couldn't venture out to the front. I, I wasn't necessarily trying to be a gentleman, just wanted to make sure that I was barricading her from seeing the other side of the car. We, we drove to dinner, and again, I had to park far away, parking in one of those parking spots near one of those bushes and shrubs and those little things that pop out of the parking lot so that no one could see the, the left side of the car. Went out, took her out of the right side, went to dinner, had a great time, walked back out, drove to a movie theater. Again, had to park far away because I couldn't let her see the left side of the car. Had a great time, it was a great movie. Finally, we came back out. Luckily, the central floor of the sun had, had gone down by then. Uh, or I really would have been in trouble. Fortunately, all that effort paid off, okay? That's the good news of the story. She never saw the left side of the car. But all during that time, it was like, oh my goodness, I'm living a lie. How, how can I keep this hidden? How can I not let her see? So during this date, instead of enjoying the companionship that, that we provided one another, instead of enjoying this first date with this beautiful person, all I could think about was, oh my gosh, where am I going to park? I got to make sure I don't drive by one of those trucks with a big mirror on it because then I'll really, really be up the creek. So what am I going to do? I had to keep up this facade for so long. Dropped her off. We did have a second date and a third date and a fourth date and then that was it. Had nothing to do with the car, I can honestly say. But it was hard work. It was like this pace that I just couldn't keep up forever. I share that story because biblically... That's the message of the gospel. The word gospel you've heard me say before is a Greek term that means the good news. And that's why it's good news. It's the message of Christ coming into this world to relieve the powerlessness and the utter hopelessness that prevails when we simply live out our own efforts and intentions to be good enough trying to hide the debris or the sin or the shame or the trauma, trying to hide it out of the way so that we don't see it, let alone anyone else. Because the truth is, I could have only kept up that facade with a dirty car for so long. 
And likewise, as a follower of Christ, you, you and I can only live in that strength for a short time before we come to the end of our rope. We, we can't keep it up. And even if we could, it would lead to a place of truth. It would be about us, whereas the gospel is not about us. It's about the message of Jesus Christ, who, because of his amazing grace and tenderness and strength, chooses to love us. Now, I'm a patient guy. Relatively speaking, would my family agree with that? Okay, my kids are, are shaking their head. But I can be a patient guy. I don't like to wait. Okay, when I was waiting for the right woman to come along, I had to wait. I had to rely on God's timing instead of my own agenda. In our culture, we don't like to wait. We, we despise traffic, and I am the chief sinner amongst us with that. We don't like waiting in line. We get frustrated if we have to wait for a meal at a restaurant. We're heartbroken when maybe we're trying to find that, that soulmate and we've been seeking for a long time and yet he or she doesn't come along. We get frustrated when we're looking for that perfect job and yet it doesn't seem to come. We get frustrated when we're waiting for that door to open and for some reason it just doesn't. We become downtrodden if we lose our job or eagerly awaiting the next thing to come along. Uh, maybe we get antsy when the sermon is too long and I can see folks doing that now. But, but this morning... This morning, we kick off the season that leads us up to Christmas. It's a time known as Advent. And maybe for some of you, that's a word, that's a phrase, that's a season with which you are familiar. For maybe other folks, this is a brand new thing. This is something with which you've never heard. And, 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 and so we're going to introduce you to something totally new this morning. The word Advent means the arrival of someone notable. It's not a biblical term, okay, the arrival of someone notable. Specifically for Christians, the Advent, uh, the season of Advent is specifically a time of waiting. More specific than that, it's a time of waiting, but with our hope placed on God. And see the key difference there. There are a lot of people in our culture that, that, that are waiting for something. But when we wait with our hope and our trust and our faith placed in God, we know that no matter where we are, something is coming. No matter how dark it seems, the light is on its way. When we journey through Advent to Christmas, we begin to see the birth of Christ more fully. His birth brought about so much hope into a hurting world. Let me take you back to the scripture that we read. Let me just give you a really, really quick backstory, a short historical context into which we find our passage this morning. Isaiah, like I said, he was a prophet in Israel. He was arguably the most famous prophet in Israel's history. He wrote this in about 700 BC. The Israelites were God's chosen people, and through them would come the Savior, the Messiah. God's offer of freedom and salvation to the world. And so God led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He led, to the, led them to this promised land that he told them that they would capture. They prospered. God defeated their enemies for the Israelites. But then the Israelites became arrogant and self-sufficient. And instead of placing their faith and trust in God, they placed it in themselves. As a result, they suffered. Israel, this nation that God had established, broke apart. You had a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom was still known as Israel. And in about 734 B.C., Judah 
okay, the southern kingdom was facing an attack from both the northern kingdom from Israel, they were turning on each other like a civil war, and also from Syria, an outside nation. And so the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, his name was King Ahaz, he thought that maybe he could strike a deal with the neighboring Assyrians. I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you, but bear with me, we're going to be okay. The Assyrians were powerful, they were mighty, but they were also ruthless. And Ahaz thought that even though he was siding with the Assyrians, this evil, evil empire, maybe they could provide some short-term protection. But God, through Isaiah the prophet, warned the king not to form an alliance with anyone. Instead, place your trust and your faith in God. Isaiah 7, 9 says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. God will provide protection for us, Isaiah said. But instead, the king, Ahaz, he chose to form an alliance with the Assyrians, who used that as an opportunity to sneak into the back door, so to speak, and they invaded Judah, enslaving all the people. The prophet Isaiah told the Jews to trust in God, but, but they didn't listen. Instead, they then turned to Egypt for help. Okay, so while the Assyrians were the primary enemy during the first part of the book of Isaiah, the cycle of power would shift. The Assyrians were later, later defeated by the Egyptians. The Egyptians later defeated by the Babylonians. God's people, they had taken their eyes off of God. They had focused on themselves, and that led to some pretty scary consequences. They found themselves in darkness, ruled by fear, ruled by shame, ruled by hopelessness, a time of despair. So the Israelites then were exiled, stripped of their homeland, forced to go elsewhere, separated from their families. This once proud, godly nation, this prosperous country was no more. But then in the latter part of the book of Isaiah, the prophet is foretelling of a new day, a day when the pain and the darkness would be a thing of the past. This is where we picked it up. The people walking in darkness, okay, the Israelites, they have seen a great light. But he's also talking about the people who were there before Jesus was born into this world. People walking in darkness, people overcome by shame, captured by fear. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. That's an amazing promise. On those living in the land of deep darkness, something's going to happen. He says, what happens? A light has dawned. The people were oppressed. They had been enslaved. They were surrounded by their enemies. Being in darkness is such a powerful metaphor. It describes the people who had long been prisoners in a foreign land. They could see no possible hope. But God is telling them, you know what? It seems like it's dark. It seems like it's scary. It seems like it's desperate beyond hope. But you know what? God is going to make a way in the wilderness. God is going to bring about light in the midst of darkness. A major shift is coming. Transformation, nothing short of transformation, is on the way. Maybe, like I said, some of you are going through just this awesome season where everything is coming up roses and everything seems to be the way you want it to be. But, but maybe there are others at times, whether it's now or maybe in the past or even maybe in the future seasons in which you feel like you're walking through darkness. It, it could be, we know, the, the darkness of sin, which hardens our heart towards God's truth. 
It could be the darkness of guilt or shame. It could be the darkness of mistakes from your past. It could be the, the darkness of uncertainty. I mean, that's a scary place to be. It could be the darkness of envy or jealousy. It could be the darkness of a painful relationship or marriage. It could be the darkness of fear and doubt and worry. But through God, and, and only through God, we can experience light. The original audience of this passage from Isaiah, light was, wow, a strong metaphor for them. It represented birth, it represented new life, it represented hope that could come from no other source. And so during the season of Advent, many people, they, they like candles. A candle brings about light and it penetrates the darkness, like the transition from night to dawn. We recognize that God is continuing to fulfill his promise. We have to lean on him, to press into him during times of waiting. Instead, uh, we're called to make times of preparation, uh, not hopelessness, but to the contrary, of preparation, to know that God is doing something new, something powerful, something transforming. And in the meantime, what are we doing to prepare our lives for that breakthrough? So you see the four candles up here, each representing one of the weeks leading up to Christmas, one of the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, and we light the first candle. It represents the fact that there is light in the midst of darkness, that in your life there are elements of darkness, there are seasons, there are chapters of being down and out, but, but through Christ, God is saying, no, you're worth fighting for, and that light is going to show that. We'll light another candle, and you can see the way the single candle provides light that just penetrates the darkness around it. Now, in each pew, there should be in front of you a, a small little book. It's like this. It says, God with us. Okay, it's a book that we're going to give you as an early Christmas present, but it's a right-on-time Advent present. Okay, I invite you to take one with you to, to spend 10 minutes a day Maybe with your family or your friends or your neighbors or someone you never, ever thought you'd do something like this with. There's a short reading for every day. We have enough, I think, for every household, whether that household is just one person or a family of many. Um, so I invite you to take one of these books, and I, I challenge you, I invite you, I promise you that you'll be blessed by it, that each day spend about 10 minutes. Each, each page is just one reading. It, it takes literally 45, 35, you know, 50 seconds, whatever it is, to read this, but, but then to talk about it with those around you. It's our way of coming to grips with the fact that we are anticipating something great because of God's power, peace, promise, and protection. To Isaiah, the, the birth of Jesus, albeit 700 years after his life, was a proclamation of truth that rang out throughout the Old Testament, okay? That endings are not always endings, but new opportunities for God to bring about a new beginning. Hear that again, that endings are not endings, but opportunities for God to bring about a new beginning. That's what God is promising through Christ. The past is now behind us. The future is now not dictated by what I have done. Don't judge me by my past, we say, because I am no longer there. 
amidst all the, the problems and uncertainty and the hustle and bustle and the hectic pace of life? Do, do we live out a hope and a faith when we realize there's possibility even when there's no present evidence of it there? Why? Because God is God, and that's the wonder of Advent. God doesn't provide empty promises. His hope reigns today. And it's easy to, to nod our head in agreement. Yeah, I can see what Isaiah was saying, because the truth is we know what happened 700 years later. We know about the birth of Christ. You know, about 70% of the prophecy mentioned in the Bible, though, is not about the coming of Jesus with his birth. It's about the second coming of Christ. Do we understand the promises that God is bringing about? Knowing that the birth of this child, God in flesh, would transform creation. In the midst of troubling times, do you have faith that God is still God? That he still loves you? That he's fighting for you? Because in his eyes, no matter what you say, no matter what anyone else says, you are worth fighting for. Now, uh, let me just for... 15 seconds. Let me, let me get real for a second, okay? Now, I, I hate to say that because that implies that I haven't been real before, okay? Everything I've said up to this point, 100% true. The car story, half-washed, true story, okay? Everything real. Many years ago, uh, my doctor diagnosed me with a, uh, just a mild case of, of clinical depression. I didn't know much about it, didn't know anything. I just thought, okay, if I'm feeling sad, I'll, I'll cheer up. But he taught me that it's about the brain and neurons and serotonin and things like that. It's easily treatable. At times, I would be treated with a, a mild antidepressant. But God has sustained me, you know, what, through that in supernatural and in powerful ways. But a few weeks ago, the doctor tried a, a new medication. I'd never been on it before. And not only did it not help, my goodness, it, it threw my body into a, a, a tailspin, into a whiz. It was harmful. I had an allergic reaction to it, which about 4% of the people they say do. And so it's been a scary, in some ways, few weeks. But you know what? In the midst of that, I've seen transformation. I've seen God's healing. I've seen the fact that the prophet said, you know what? There's going to be a light in the midst of darkness. And so in my own life, I've been kind of walking through that. And, and now I see the hope and the peace that can only come from God. I share that as a story of victory. Because I pray that if you're in a season of darkness now, that you'll be able to look back and see the ways in which God carried you through that. The ways in which God led you through that. I was able to open up my heart to the ways in which God, through his power, not my own strength because, daggone it, I didn't have any left. How through the power of God, he was leading me. And how through the power of God, he is leading us. That's what God has been calling us to do all along, to fully lean on him, to press into him, to trust in him. And when we do walk in that light of Christ, it can be intimidating because the truth is, very often, it's unchartered territory. It's an unfamiliar setting. And so through our scripture this morning, we see the power of light, and we also see it contrasted to the harshness of darkness. But you know what? Sometimes we get so used to the darkness that the light takes a while to get used to. Each morning I go into our daughter's room, she's eight years old, have to get her up at about 6.45, get her ready for school, and I walk in her room and I'll say, Grace Ann, okay, Princess Grace Ann, your daddy's here, I'm gonna turn on the light in a second, and she buries her head under the cover and says, don't turn on the light, don't turn on the light. But you see, we need that light. 
It's only through the lens of that light that we can see the truth. Don't turn on the light. God is saying to you and to me this morning, in your life, I want to turn on the light. Don't lean on your own understanding. Place your trust in Christ. The light is not something meant to bring about discomfort, but rather peace and hope. Remember the word Advent? It's through that word Advent, through that root word, that we get the word adventure. That God is calling us on this lifetime journey, this adventure, if you will, with him to bring about hope and restoration and future and peace and hope and joy. And so finally, let me throw out this final analogy. Imagine that together we're watching a movie. Okay, we're watching this movie about uh, an orphanage. And there's this three-year-old little boy in this orphanage. We see one day that a couple comes to adopt him. Now, we can see as the outside looking in, we can see that this is going to be a good thing. They're going to provide him with a new home, with loving parents, with a beautiful home, with a big yard, with good schools, surrounded by a lot of friends. We give it thumbs up and we say, wow, what a beautiful ending to the story. And it will be. But for that three-year-old little boy, the orphanage is all he's ever known. And as they carry him out or walk him out or hold his hand out to get into this new couple's car, he's a little bit scared. He's a little bit nervous, I dare say even traumatized, because everything he's known now is being transformed and changed. We know it's a happy ending. One day he'll know it's a happy ending, even if he doesn't sense it right then and there. That's the power of Advent. That's the power of Scripture this morning. That you're on a journey like that little boy. You, you don't really know how it's going to end necessarily. But, but God knows. And God is leading you to places of peace and hope and joy. In our Scripture this morning, it talks about darkness being invaded by the light. Through Scripture, speaking of the birth of Christ, we are called to follow that light, to follow that star, if you will. It may mean picking up and moving on from a place maybe where we've been really comfortable. And you know what? Whenever we follow something, whenever we move, whether it's us changing jobs or moving cities or moving to another home or taking another job or this three-year-old little boy going from an orphanage into a caring, loving, forever family, it's different. And when it's different, it can be unsettling. It was certainly unsettling for that teenage unwed mother named Mary who would give birth to Jesus. It was certainly unsettling for her new husband, Joseph. It was certainly unsettling for the, the shepherds in the fields nearby to leave the only lives they've ever known to follow God. But we know the ending. We know that that uncertainty on their part then and there leads them to a place of light and hope. To follow, to follow. We are called to follow. To follow requires turning towards something, therefore turning away from something. To follow, it's an action word. It means we have to do something on our part. To follow means a choice, to constantly move toward that light. And how this morning is God calling you to follow that light? Are you willing to do it? Are you willing to trust him? Because I'll be honest with you, I've got your back. Okay, I'm blessed to have people who've got my back. I've got your back. Chapel Roswell's got your back. 
More importantly and most importantly, God's got your back. Because Jesus shows that despite what the world thinks of you, no matter what you think of yourself, you are. You are worth fighting for. And God wants us to see that in the context of new light. Get rid of the darkness to bring in the light and the truth of Christ. Friends, will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit upon our preparations for Christmas, that we who have so much do seek quiet times to hear your voice each day, that we who are anxious over many things look forward to your coming among us. And Lord God, we are so blessed in so many ways, and we long for the complete joy of your kingdom. We whose hearts may have been heavy, we seek the joy of your presence. We are your people. At times we're walking in darkness, but we're seeking the light. May we follow that light. And we thank you for the fact that our future is not dictated by our past. We thank you for the love and the hope and the joy and the peace that you want to fill our lives. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.